The human spirit is unconquerable. We are individuals and we are sovereign, born with unlimited potential, gifted from our creator. Our mission is to break free from the systems that bind us. I volunteer as tribute. We strive for peace and prosperity and overcome all challenges, roadblocks, and obstacles. We are empowered because we think for ourselves and we act for ourselves. We are self-reliant and independent, but guided by the wisdom of those who share our values. What possible difference can I make? There is no government, no ruler, nor ideas that are able to stop us. We are driven to succeed because we seek political freedom, financial freedom, and spiritual freedom. It's all for nothing if you don't have freedom. This is Mike Corbell, and you are listening to The Invictus Mind. Well, hello, everyone. Welcome back to another edition of the Invictus Mind podcast, the show dedicated to helping you become unconquerable through personal growth, self-improvement, and association. This is your host, Mike Corbell, and I'm happy to be here and happy to lead this discussion about discovering and magnifying our political freedom, financial freedom, and spiritual freedom. As always, our aim is to provide our listeners with the tools to spread this message. So please subscribe and share this show with three of your friends. You can find us on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, Anchor, and all the others. You can also check out the videos on YouTube and follow me on any of your favorite social media platforms. Also, if you like any of the show notes, business ideas, money-saving tricks, and information about upcoming events, you can join the Invictus newsletter by texting the word Invictus, I-N-V-I-C-T-U-S, to the number 33777. All right. Well, today in the program, I want to take a 50,000-foot view of the state of the world. I want to be able to step outside of the normal paradigm of what we see on a regular basis and truly examine what's going on. We are, in my opinion, going through a transition period in the history of mankind. We are moving from a materialist world to a mystical world, and most people are unaware of such changes. They can only see what is in front of them and almost oblivious as to what government acts and the way it does and why the media reports how it does and why people react in ways that often make no sense. We're going to get a little spiritual today, and so I'm excited to have my guest joining me on the program. This guy I'm going to call a philosopher is a host of an AM-FM radio program called A Neighbor's Choice. His website is aneighborschoice.com, where you can read several of his essays and writings, and his podcast is called Things Hidden. I first discovered his ideas about a year ago, and unfortunately, it's taken me almost as long to find his actual program, but since then, I've been hooked. I've truly been inspired to get him on the show. So I'd like to welcome to the program, Mr. David Gronoski. How you doing, David? Good. How you doing? Great, great. You know, I, I really appreciate uh, you coming to my show today. I've, uh, I've been really hooked on some of the messages that you've, uh, you've shared with me. Well, thank you. I'm glad to, to have a talk with you. You know, I'm a, I'm a pretty avid reader, David. And uh, what's interesting is when I, get to, when I hear a, a good book or a good subject, I want to be able to get the book right away. The last book I read, literally, I just put it down today, was Joseph Campbell's The Hero with a Thousand Faces. Okay, yeah. And, and I know that you talk a lot about uh, René Girard, and unfortunately, I have not been able to pick up his book yet. So I thought that maybe we could talk a little bit about uh, some of his uh, teachings, because I know that a lot of your work is based on mimetic desire and, and a scapegoating mechanism. Yeah. Yeah, where do you want to start? There's a lot to it, but it's a, you know it's got a whole cohesion to it. Well, you know... That book, uh, Hero with a Thousand Faces, it, uh, it was really interesting, but it was kind of a difficult read. But I, I get the gist of it. Uh, they talk about the monomyth and how most of the stories, the myths and uh, religions of the world kind of have a basic tenet. 
they're they're very similar, and I think most people kind of uh, they they copy this this mimetic desire. Maybe you can expound a little bit on what that means. Yeah, well, mimesis means imitation. So mimetic desire means you're imitating the desire of somebody else. So you copy the desires that other people want. So we think we just copy just by fashion or you know, gestures or stuff like that. But we actually, human beings are wired to desire what other people desire to see what they want and what they want to acquire. And we try to acquire it too. So that's how you learn to uh, think of certain things and have certain philosophies. And it's very fashionable to not believe in God. It's very fashionable to talk about science as a God, you know, they don't know what science is. The people who talk about science don't know anything about science. Dr. Fauci, they don't know anything about mitochondrial health. They don't know anything about the way the metabolic system works in our body. They don't know anything about what vegetable oils do to our mitochondria. Or if they don't, if they do know they're, they're evil then because they don't tell people what to do, which is to stop eating vegetable oils, to stop eating sugar. All those things, of course, are rooted in imitation. People imitate the script. They imitate philosophy. They imitate uh, narratives that they think are uh, powerful and transcendent. And that's what mimetic desire is all about. It's the idea of not only copying rote behavior, but copying what we think other people uh, desire to be. We want to be uh, transcendent. Human beings want to be transcendent. They want to be a part of something bigger than themselves. And they're very envious and jealous of other people. And we prop up people around us like gods. That's what we call keeping up with the Joneses. Mm -hmm. so the Jones always have a house that's better than yours. They always have a car that's better than yours. They always have a relationship that's better than yours. They always have a school that's better than yours. They always have children better behaved than yours. They always have something better than you. And you idolize them and you're jealous of them and you envy them. You want to be them. And so you, you, you desire what they desire or what you perceive them desiring so that you can become them. Remember that guy that killed uh, John Lennon? Mm -hmm. What was his name? Brinkley or something, was it? Yeah, Hinkley. Hinkley something, yeah. yeah. So this guy, he said when they asked him, why'd you do it? He said, I wanted to be him. I wanted to be him, right? And you think right. about all those creepers that stalk celebrities, you know? And they want to be the celebrity, you know, they're, they're sometimes the, and that's what Rene Girard says, the line between adoration and murder is very thin. We adore people to death. We adore politicians to death. We adore our heroes from childhood to death. Sometimes we adore our children to death. We adore all kinds of people. We idolize them too much and we smother them in our attempt to try to become them, right? And so, and that is something that Rene Girard was looking at is this obsessive desire to be. Remember what Shakespeare said, to be or not to be? That is the question. Right now, we are operating on our Cartesian model, which is I think, therefore I am. But that's not a proper model of the universe. The real model of the universe is to be or not to be, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Which is more biblically based. You know, Christianity and modernism and materialism, they're all about I think blank, therefore I I am, right? I think this doctrine, therefore I am a Christian. I think this church is the correct church, therefore I am a Christian. I think this idea, therefore I'm a libertarian. I think this, therefore I'm a good person. But that's not what reality is about. Reality is about becoming, you know? It's about becoming. 
And who are we going to be? It's a state of being that we're looking after and so much of what we look at in mimetic desire. So the simple way to look at mimetic desire is to look at two children fighting over the same toy. And, uh, you know, the first child picks up the toy, didn't really care about it. Then the next child says, hey, I really want that toy. Tries to pull the toy away from the first child. First child didn't care about the toy until the second child wants it. Now the first child really wants it too. See, that's mimetic desire. Right. And as you said, everyone has their own identity, but they think that their identity is correct. And then they're willing to fight and die for that identity. Right. So that's it's right. fun. It's funny. I was uh, I was driving yesterday, and you asked me offline, the, you know, how things are in Chicago, and I would say that ninety eight percent of people are still compliant to the mask mandates here in Chicago, yeah. and uh, it broke my heart because I'm seeing it was about three o'clock, and the school had just gotten out, and I was driving somewhere, and I and I saw about a hundred kids all over the road wearing their masks, you know, and I'm wondering if there's a one brave enough to not wear it, you know, what would happen to that kid? Would he get teased? Would he get scorned? But everybody just wants a copy, and I, I'm not sure what the heck's going on with that. Well, you're, what's going on with that is that's human beings. They've always been that way. You, you just didn't have a crisis to see this clearly. That's all. The human right. beings are always like that. They copy, they copy, they copy. They copy more than the animals do. And cities are hive minds of copycats. So uh, cities tend to attract the most imitative, mimetically owned minds possible. And I'm not, I'm not, there's also great innovators and so forth in cities. But when you think about, think about the visual of building, of building, uh, uh, building so high that you can stack people on top of each other. That's a mimetic contagion already, just visually. It's like a little hive mind, you know, it literally mm -hmm. looks like a hive. And it's like they have to be so close to one another that they have to stack a building up to the sky just to stack human to warehouse human beings on top of each other. That is a, that is going to be a, 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 an environment ripe, ripe for mimetic undifferentiation, which people lose their mind in the sense of group think contagion, you know, they're, they're just, and so, yeah, I mean, it doesn't mean that, you know, all human beings are mimetic. That's what makes us great too, you know, but the problem is, you know, cities tend to attract uh, uh, an overabundance of the worst type of imitation. Uh, when these cities decline, they just become uh, striving after social status, striving after stupidity and so forth. If the television tells them this is what you do, they want to do it. If the television tells them this is what you got to look like, they want to do it. They don't have any ability to say, hey, you know, I don't care. I'm just going to do what's right. They don't care. They just are told this is what you put a mat like, like stupid Joe Biden. I mean, this is a guy who spent 50 years of his, you know, career bombing every person of color around the globe he could find. And this man is paraded as a man of social justice. This is a man who spent his entire career marginalizing vulnerable communities with the war on drugs, the crime bill, militarization of police. And this guy is presented by the television as a hero of justice. Only an idiot would believe the television. You have to be so shriveled up in your rational processing to look at the television and it tells you this man spent 50 years locking up people of color. This is a man who spent 50 years bombing people of color. This man will give you Black Lives Matter justice. Are you kidding me? Only an idiot, <laughs> you know, mimetically owned so bad. And I don't mean idiot like their IQ. I mean, they're foolishly locked in a contagion of groups group thinks so bad that they cannot see straight, you know?
All right, guys, let's take a quick second. I want to thank our awesome sponsor for today's show, which is Pack Crest Botanicals. If you listen to episode 55 of this show, then you heard my conversation with Michael Pickens. He is the CEO of Pack Crest Botanicals, which offers the highest quality herbal supplements, natural topicals, and CBD hemp products. They also carry Delta 8 vape cartridges. Now, Delta 8 is fully legal in all 50 states, and unlike regular Delta 9 cannabis, when you take it, you get a nice relaxing body sensation without the anxiety or paranoia you sometimes get with recreational products. With Pack Crest, your medicine gets shipped directly to your home. It comes in a little undisclosed box and ready to go. Pack Crest Botanicals also has full spectrum tinctures, adaptogen teas, mushroom blends, and even topicals and balms. So go to packcrestbotanicals.com. The listeners of this program will get a 30% discount on their first order. Just type in the word Invictus at checkout. That's packcrestbotanicals.com with discount code Invictus for 30% off. They don't skimp on quality because the stuff they sell is the stuff they want to use. Now let's get back to the show. Right, and the, and the TV itself has short-term memory because they won't tell you all the things that Joe Biden has done for 50 years, just what he's saying right now. Right, and I don't mind if people want to take vaccines, you know, take all three vaccines, go have at it. Why can't they push? I mean, that's the next thing. They'll have to say, get them. You get the special star student. If you get all three vaccines, <laughs> Pfizer, Moderna, and Johnson and Johnson, then you're the truck. You're the superstar student. Uh, but you know, the, you know, the television tells you, you must get this. There is no other way, no other herd immunity available except through these vaccines. And then you say, wait a second, aren't you guys the same media companies that tell us all about Pfizer being sued, Johnson & Johnson being sued for criminal things, all kinds of stuff they've gone through, Bextra, Viox, Celebrex, mm -hmm. all these drugs have all kinds of terrible health effects and they hide the information and they have a revolving door relationship with the regulators and we're told, over and over again for decades, CNBC, CBS, ABC, they've, they've been telling us all the crooked stuff that these companies have done. And they don't, and they're, they think that we have a goldfish memory where we can't remember that. You know what I'm saying? It's like a television show season one. This character is a good guy. Season two, they're a villain or, or vice versa. Season one, they're a villain. They bring them back in season two. Now they're somehow a good guy and you don't get a good enough explanation as to how that transition happened. <laughs> you know, right. usually with a good story is you're supposed to see a character arc. You're supposed to see, Oh, they started off evil, but slowly they develop their character to the point where they become redeemed. That's not what the television does. They're just like, yeah, they did this. They pushed us into opioids. They pushed us into Celebrex. They pushed us into all these toxic drugs. They had criminal things. They had they had hidden stuff. They had payouts. They had biases. And then episode two, oh, they're wonderful. They've got vaccines. Go get them or you're dead. You know, what did that happen? How did how 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 low information do you have to be to buy into that narrative? You know right. what I mean? They don't even have a good story as to how they redeem themselves to be able to push a drug in an emergency order. And remember the television was telling us during the debates that if Trump was reelected, those vaccines that he was developing were be no good. Remember that mm -hmm. Kamala Harris said, Oh, I'm not taking that Trump vaccine. That's the same vaccine. She's pushing on everybody. Now it's right. the same thing. She just won the election. So now it's magically good. It takes a really programmed group think own mind to buy into this stuff, you know? Yeah, exactly. And it's just uh, it's absolutely crazy. Uh, like you said, there's there's no narrative. It's just one day 
this is what everyone does. The next day, everyone does something different. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the, the election just keeps going. Are, are you familiar with a, a guy by the name of Vin Armani? No, I'm not. Who's that? Wait, who's that? No. So Vin Armani, he's been, uh, he's a podcaster. He, uh, he's been on several shows. Um, he, uh, he actually wrote a book um, called Render Unto Caesar. But he's okay. talking about how we're, uh, we're actually now entering into what we call the dim age. Uh, a state of mysticism. That's kind of how I started the program here, David. You know, we uh, we have a material world that we were in, and all of a sudden now, by magic, people are just uh, you know, with through technology and through the TV and through media channels, they're just believing things that uh, um, are unreal or untruthful, and uh, we're we're kind of going through a transition. What I think is interesting is that uh, you, you know people. It doesn't matter who the source is. It's just if it's on TV, that's what you see. If it's uh, if it's been told by some expert, that's what you see, whether there's a, a reality to it or not. If Dr. Fauci told you that if your kid tests positive for COVID, you need to put them in the garage so that they're not in the main house with the air circulation and put them with a, a dog saucer, uh, you know, like a pet food saucer. <laughs> and put their food in that water, you know, pour the water in the dog saucer so you don't touch the dishes that they have. You know, you keep your dishes for the rest of the family. And if your kid gets COVID, you put them in the garage for two weeks and you check on them and change their water in the dog saucer so as to not touch all the other dishes that everybody else is using. Millions of people would do it. If Joe Biden told them we're going to create a new policy where we're going to provide unlimited uh, housing free housing, free government housing, free government provided meals. We're going to provide labor programs and we're going to provide free government health care. We're going to expand our federal prisons and you can join the federal prison and you'll have a work program for 15 cents an hour. You'll have three square meals provided to you by the government. You'll provide, you'll get free education. You'll have library access. You'll have gym exercise. You will have full security. <laughs> you know, you will be taken care of. You will have full government health care. And they said, we're, we're just going to expand the prisons to allow uh, lots of people who want to come in here and you can be a part of this system at no cost of your own. Millions of people would sign up for that because NBC and ABC and CBS, who always dutifully support whatever the media, whatever the official uh, DC establishment wants, they will market that as, hey, isn't this amazing? It's a total reformation of our society. Now we don't have to work. So this is an option for people who want to be a part of a new society, a great new, you know, wait, what was that other one called? The great society. This is going to be the better society, the greatest society, and it will be everything taken care of. Millions of people would go along with that. That's what mimetic groupthink does. It, 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 is, a, it is human desire. Uh, basically uh, picked up by other people, you know, and it's based on how much momentum the contagion of avalanche of desire is moved. You know, it's like, you know, it's an avalanche and it has momentum, you know? And so if millions of people want something, it makes it harder for other people to resist going along with that. Reminds me of the book of brave new world by, uh, by Huxley. Yeah. You know, as long as people keep getting fed their soma, then everything will be okay. Yeah. David, a lot of your uh, your podcasts, some of the things you talk about, uh, I want to get a little bit uh, into some of the scapegoating that you talk about. 
You know, uh, I, I think you were, uh, one of your episodes recently, you were talking about uh, this world that we live in is based on uh, the, the Christian principle. Western civilization is heavily influenced by Christianity, even though in today's world, it seems like people are forgetting their God. They're forgetting, you know, why those principles were set up the way they were, but they're still imitating and they're still they're still creating scapegoats for everything. Can you tell a little bit about what the scapegoat mechanism is? Yeah. So the scapegoat mechanism is the idea that human beings, if we're copying each other, uh, that's good when it's positive, but it turns bad when we copied negative stuff like hate and anger, violence and aggression. So if human beings are like little magnetic copycat machines, and that's true, mirror neurons and other things suggest that's true. Um, our ability to make tools suggests that's true. All innovation comes from good imitation. All imitate, all innovation comes from good, positive mimetic desire, mimetic behavior. And then the worst stuff of humanity comes from negative mimetic desire where you have uh, tit-for-tat violence, right? So animals, they don't white. Do you know of any animal that goes on an intentional genocide? I can't think of one. Lions will kill their rival males, you know, uh, cubs, you know, but they, they don't obliterate everything they can find, you know, from the rival camp. They will just kill the cubs so that the lionesses go into heat again so they can mate with them and get the lion uh, lineage going. Mm -hmm. But generally speaking, it's human beings that go on genocide. We'll wipe out the whole village, the whole tribe, the whole nation, and go back and forth for, for generations. Uh, so the question is, how do we survive if that's how we are? Like, why are we still here? How come we didn't cease to exist, to get extinguished from our own violence? And Gerard said that, you know, if you look at the earliest societies, we see the record of human sacrifice, you know, of whenever there's a festival or ever there's a time of seasonal change or there's a celebration of the uh, crops or whatever, that there would be a, a sacrifice that would be offered, you know? And so... He's saying, well, how come all these religions that in these societies that don't know each other are all doing the same sacrificial rituals? You know, what, did they all hang out at one point and decide on doing this? Or, you know, is this something that humans stumbled upon to kind of like uh, coincidental evolution, you know, happening at the same time? Social evolution is what I'm talking about. If you study history and, and, and study religion, they'll talk about uh, how uh, man was instructed to actually perform sacrifice. And of course, of course, Jesus Christ is supposed to be the similitude of that. And uh, at the end of his, uh, his life, you know, he was saying this, the sacrifice is now done, but people still continue to do that. They have the desire to still sacrifice. Yeah, the first sacrifice is when Cain kills Abel, right? Yeah, and, and we, we, we saw just recently on TV, we had the, uh, um, the scapegoat, this, uh, this cop, right? This guy, Derek Chauvin, he was the latest sacrifice. So now, now all, all this political violence will now end because, uh, because of the latest scapegoat. But uh, I don't well, think that's going to happen. It won't work anymore because we don't, we don't agree on sacrifices because some people think Derek Chauvin is the scapegoat and some people think that George Floyd is the scapegoat. Mm -hmm. You see, in the ancient society communities, they didn't have dueling scapegoats. They had a consensus on who was the villain. You know, We can't agree on who the villain is anymore, you see? Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Why is that? Why do we not agree on who the villain is anymore? Well, we all have our own identities, and so we all have our own different uh, person who is uh, against that identity. And how did we get to that point? See, that's the question that Gerard's asking. How did we get to that point? 
how do we get to the point where we have our own personal conception of what's the good guy and who's the bad guy? I'm not sure. I wish we could figure Jesus. that one out. Jesus is the personhood revolution. Jesus creates the personhood concept. Okay. Right? Because society kills the one. The collective kills the one. And when the collective kills the one, that's been happening since the dawn of time. But when Jesus does it, the gospel writers write it from the perspective of the one instead of the many. And from that standpoint, you get to see the birth of personhood. The idea of the individual becomes something that will be sacred. Before that, the community was the sacred. The community's shared values, uh, the collective, the collective body was the sacred. Sacred. But then when Jesus comes into the history story, he performs the role of the scapegoat. But instead of it being told from the winners of history, which was the crowd's perspective, it's told from the victim's perspective, which is the individual person. And ever since that story is shared throughout history, it contaminates the old order of the many defining reality, and it orients it back to the one defining reality, the individual. Mm -hmm. And that's where the West gets this unique concept of individual and personhood and so forth. But that was because of Jesus's uh, story that infected the stories of all the world. All the other stories had mythology written from the vintage point of the collective. And the collective always makes sure that their narrative is rock solid. So back in the day, um, if the George Floyd thing had happened thousands and thousands of years ago, uh, because Derek Chauvin represented the uh, establishment, the police, you know, there would be no disagreement on who was the villain and who was the good guy. But because of Jesus destroying that unanimity of scapegoating, now they're scrambled narratives. Now some people think George Floyd was the innocent sacrificial lamb and Derek Chauvin was the oppressor. In fact, I would say most people in America are tend to lean to that perspective. Then the other uh, smaller group of people said, no, Derek Chauvin was a sacrificial lamb and George Floyd was just, you know, whatever, you know, he was uh, deified by the media. Uh, but but see that's a that's a scrambled narrative because Jesus destroyed the unanimity of mythmaking. You got to understand that the gospels is a media phenomenon. If you take one thing away from this show today, you know what I'm saying today. I'm talking to everybody. The gospel is a media technology, mm. and it informs all technologies that it percolates in. It informs our cell phone cameras, the way we take cameras, the way we talk about things, the way we talk about radio podcasting. It informs the narratives of what we're capturing and sharing with one another. And it does not allow for unanimity to be bound together through shared sacrifice anymore. Remember when Caiaphas said we had to kill Jesus, he said it's better that one man die than the whole nation perish. That's the heart of politics. That's the heart of government. Right. And so the Bible is deconstructing politics, hmm. but you have to see it. You know, if you're part of group think, you won't let it, you won't let it apply to your own contemporary time. But when you, when you, when you start, and we're all part of group think to some degree or another, we all get locked up into a uh, herd mentality. But when you start to become more self-aware of that, then you can say, Oh, that makes sense. It's better that one man die than the whole nation perish. And that doesn't just include, actual killing people it can also include um, the idea of social death. Cause you put someone in prison, that's a social death. That's kind of like dying, you know, being locked in a warehouse with violence and assault and 
terror and PTSD and all the horrible things that go along in, in that environment for a nonviolent crime is another way of bearing false witness against your neighbor, by the way. You know, if you put someone in a cage, you're basically showing, you know how they say actions speak louder than words? Right, right. So your actions perform false witness against a neighbor. Let's say they were uh, doing a nonviolent thing or they had a suspended license or whatever, something like that. And then you're going to put them in a cage with violent gangs where they can't leave. And if they leave, they get shot by the uh, security. What you're doing is you're performing false witness against your neighbor. Mm. You're performing, you're treating them like they're violent when they're not. And so by doing that, you are shaming yourself every time we do that as a society. And that's why we have so much guilt and shame built into our narratives today. And politicians try to redirect that shame and guilt into one people group or another. They don't want that shame and guilt to go back on the individual for self-examination about the temptation of human nature when given ultimate power. Mm-hmm. You see? So they want to quarantine it into it's the liberals, it's white people, it's males, toxic males, it's uh, immigrants, it's uh, Muslims, it's some group, but it can't be all of us. Because if all human nature is indicted by our temptation to use absolute power in wicked ways, guess what that means? That means we have to repent of all this state worship. Mm. And that's the one thing human beings don't want to do because they want to maintain their prerogative to use preemptive violence to harm those who they're afraid of or who they're jealous of. You think that's gotten worse over the years? I mean, you, you mentioned obviously uh, you go back a thousand years, and uh, and people uh, wouldn't think that uh, George Floyd would uh, would be the uh, the victim would, would be the good guy or anything like that. I think it's a good thing. See, I think it's a good thing that George Floyd has defenders. Okay, it doesn't mean because I'm not telling you one way or another which story is correct. I'm just telling you, the in order to defeat tyranny, you need to have, have different perspectives. Mm-hmm. If it's a totalitarian perspective, you don't have anything, right? So the in if you were in the ancient, you know, Incan Empire, when they sacrificed somebody, there was no different, there's no disagreeing opinion. You didn't debate that at the lunchroom that day. You didn't say, hey, you know, when that priest ripped that man's heart out on the temple, I don't think he deserved that. I think he was a great guy. <laughs> you didn't get to have that perspective. There was one perspective, total perspective. The sacred permeated everything. Mm-hmm. You didn't get you didn't get a different. You didn't get Fox News and One American News and CNN. You didn't get all these. You, you had one perspective, and that's it. You might have personal doubts in your head back then, but those were not allowed to be shared as a different narrative. And so, for in order for tyranny to fall apart, you have to have decentralized perspectives, decentralized narratives. The downside of that is that it can be very chaotic and confusing as to what's true. That's what you're referring to, I think, as the mystical time, right? That we have all these different feelings and postmodern subjective experiences or something. Is that what you're talking about? Correct. Postmodernism is everywhere. And then, uh, you know, obviously we want to talk about uh, decentralized communication, which is you know, everyone knows that as the freedom of speech that we have in America. 
but uh, it seems that uh, that's been going away, or at least they're trying to put the kibosh on that right now. You know, we, we, we don't want to be able to have freedom of speech anymore, because if you think the wrong narrative, then you're either uh, you're canceled or you're shunned or, uh, you know, you're you're, uh, you're basically just eliminated from that uh, from that ability. Yeah. I mean, that's 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 a re- so that's a return to the 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 the, the normal of, of most of human history, you know. Today's politically correct speech codes are a vestige of ritual, uh, human uh, incantations, and mythology. And what I mean by that is there was a shared narrative. Odin demands this, right? Mm-hmm. Zeus demands this. And this is the story why this is required of us. And you didn't get to have a minority report to say, well, no, I don't agree with that. Zeus is not real. You didn't get to have that. It was just, this is the standard culture and this is the way it has to be. What the gods were actually were, were actually projections of the human culture itself. Mm. See, we don't, I told you before, we don't want to take responsibility for our own violence. So we have to quarantine it today. We quarantine it into political rivals. It's the left, it's the right, it's the, uh, Antifa, it's the neo-Nazis, it's the Trump voters, it's the, you know, we're always trying to push the shame of all evil into one group. But back in the old ancient world, before Jesus broke the sacrificial old order, uh, you would project your violence into the sky. So you'd say, you know, hmm. we had to sacrifice this guy because the gods demanded it. But the gods didn't demand it. The gods are actually just the crowd. Right. You know? The, the, the crowd, you know, what they call the wrath of the gods is actually the wrath of the crowd swept up in mimetic frenzy of hate or fear. And if you, and it's called the wrath of the gods, because if you don't appease that crowd, that crowd's going to turn on itself and you're going to have hell on earth. So that psychological experience and fear of hell on earth of all against all is projected into the sky as the wrath of the gods. And that's, and so, you know, before you had ritual sacrifice, before you had ritual sacrifice, you had the primitive archaic scapegoat mechanism, Mm -hmm. which is the unconscious accidental stumbling upon a common victim. And that's, again, everybody's pointing fingers at everybody else. You're the problem. You're the problem. You're the problem. You're mean, you're stupid, you're dumb, you're evil, bad, 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 you know? And all of a sudden those that imitation mimetic desire turns on one common person. It's that person's fault. He's a witch. He's a monster. He's a deplorable. Right. And everybody agrees. Hey, I think you're right. That guy is the monster. And usually a scapegoat is someone that can't defend themselves because they don't have, because if you have a lot, if you're very popular, they might defend you. And that's just going to create a war. Hmm. If you select somebody who's got a lot of friends, they're going to stand in the way and say, you don't kill him. He's not a problem. He's great. So whoever gets the scapegoat killing is the someone who has lost his popularity. Maybe they were the god, maybe they were the king, and now they're not as popular anymore. Maybe they were the um maybe they they were a pet, maybe the person was a peasant or a or a disabled person, someone who had a disability, someone who would not have a lot of social standing to fight back. And it becomes very easy to believe that it's just like, you know, if, if everybody says someone is guilty, it's harder to say no. Mm-hmm. 
right? Right. And so you think about the, the story of Christ and uh, the politicians, Pontius Pilate wanted to appease the crowd. Yeah. He washed his hands clean, even though he couldn't find any, any guilt in the, in the man of Jesus himself, but he didn't want to have a revolt <laughs> among the Jews. So he washed his hands clean because that, uh, that tyranny of the mob uh, would have done something bad, would have, might have ended his, uh, his reign as governor or, uh, you know, uh, caused war in the, in the land. Yeah, so he actually let go of Barabbas. And the earliest gospel texts record Barabbas' name as Yeshua Barabbas. Mm, right. So there's two Jesuses there. Jesus, the nonviolent one, and Jesus, the revenge guy. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, and everyone was upset, or they didn't accept uh, Christ as a, as a savior because they expected him to be a conqueror. And what's uh, interesting is that uh, he was nonviolent. He was he was peaceful man. You know he he didn't preach violence at all. And and so when people, even Christians today, they want to they want to use violence to justify their own ends. They're they're forgetting the whole message. They're imitating Barabbas, not the real. You know, there's two Jesuses. The earliest gospels record Barabbas's name as Yeshua Barabbas. Bar means of Abbas the Father, Jesus of the Father, two sons of the Father, two Jesus sons of the Father. And the crowd has asked, which one do you choose? Do you choose the one who says nonviolence, respect for the individual, or do you choose the one who says, let's get revenge by force? And the crowd says, let's save the guy who wants vengeance, and let's kill the guy who says forgive our enemies. Yeah, it's crazy. So we've been choosing the wrong Jesus ever since in some, in some sense, you know? Even Christians, they always go off to war, they go off to this, they go off to that, and that's not the right Jesus. That's Jesus Barabbas. That's the other Jesus. See what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. And so there's a, there's a lot of uh, people within the Christian anarchy circle who uh, want nothing to do with the government because they understand the, the violence and the force behind that. Right. And uh, I have this conversation with some of my friends all the time about, uh, you know, whether or not uh, liberty is something that we should violently defend. And I'm like, I don't think that we should violently defend liberty. You know, I, I think that we should, we should, we should peacefully go after the things that we want liberty yeah. being a, a force that, uh, that God has given to us. Right. But the, I also, I often ask like, you know, what is worth dying for? You know, what, what kind of, what kind of, uh, what kind of life do we want to have? You know, people seem to be afraid of dying in this world unless they're, they, they come uh, under attack and they, they, they feel like they're coming under attack uh, in every, you know, at every angle. Yeah. That the fear of death is what permeates a lot of uh, the problems of our time. Right. So you talk a lot about on your show, uh, some of the, uh, the differences between the left and the right based on the Christian model. You talk a little bit about uh, how uh, the left, uh, I think you said is, is more of an aesthetic uh, version of uh, the Christian story. And the right, right. is, uh, is more materialist. Well, the right is more of a classic scapegoating, and the left is more of the Christian-flavored scapegoating, you know? So the right is more prone to say, you know, don't question institutions of tradition, don't question, you know, police actions. Whenever there's a disputed shooting, the right always says, yeah, they always default and say, yeah, the police was right, the guy who got shot was wrong. Um, and so that goes back to more of the pagan approach. You know, in Rome, if there was a, a Roman soldier killed somebody in a, in a horrible way or a, or a, or a uh, you know, brutal way, you know, the society would not say, well, let's see what he did. Let's make sure we get the body cam footage of the Roman soldier to make sure that he didn't do this 
improperly. No, they just said, no, whatever Rome did is representative of Rome's glory. And this person who was killed by a Roman soldier, of course, they, they had it coming to them. So that's the classic pagan way of looking at things. The right tends to lean towards that perspective. And the left is more into an aesthetic that looks more like Christianity, where they're saying, no, we want to know the perspective of the person being accused. We want to know the perspective of the person who's oppressed, marginalized, outcast. That's the perspective we're going to be biased towards no matter what. And the problem with that is, is of course, that creates just another excuse to have revenge scapegoating, right? So now we have to tax the rich because the oppressed don't have as much, or we have to, uh, you know, put violent laws to cage people for speech violations because people who are oppressed may be hurt by certain speech. And uh, we have to, uh, you know, always destroy anybody who prefers things like family and so forth, because family, not everybody gets to have an intact nuclear family. And so therefore we have to defend those who don't get to have that nuclear family by attacking the idea of a family being a good thing. Right. So the, the left is always obsessed, you know, or, you know, engineering departments, the graduate students tend to be like what 70, 80% man. And so they say, well, that's, that's not fair. So we need to have equity where we can replace that and make 70 to 80% of engineering graduates become women, right? We need to make that, you know, so that's the only, it has to balance out anything that's not equal, right? And so the left tends to be a little bit more Christian in their aesthetic, but they ethically turn to sacrificial violence. But the reason why the left is always winning the culture against the right is that the left, again, imitates the aesthetic of Christianity and Jesus is in the driver's seat of history. So whichever brand of sacred violence most effectively imitates the winner of history, which is Jesus, that brand will be the one that wins the day through the generations. So the right is reactionary. Jesus is not a reactionary. Mm. The left has a vision for the future. They want to go somewhere. They have a vision about where society should go. But that is an all-powerful state with corporations and so forth doing everything in a kind of hive mind global utopia. But that actually imitates the idea of the kingdom of heaven more than the right does. The right is just more like, hey, slow down on that idea. Don't do that so fast. So that's why the right is never in the leadership of culture. Right. They just slow things down. They say, oh, don't, don't. Don't create a United Nations. Oh, we got a United Nations. Don't create a Department of Education. Oh, we got a Department of Education. Don't, you know, do this or that. They, they, just, they just slow it down, but they're not the leaders of the culture. The right just slows it down. They're just sitting there. They're like a backseat driver that tells the left, hey, watch it. You're going too fast. Slow down. So they're, who's in the backseat is the child. Mm. Who's, in the, who's in the driver's seat is the one who's moving everything. That's sure. the leader. And that's right. the left, right? But the left, unfortunately, act like emotional children because they can't handle their emotions. So that's where we're at today because the right doesn't understand uh, the aesthetic of the gospel. They, they, they choose the aesthetic of the pagan sacred before the gospel, even though they claim to have the metaphysics of Christ, but they still have the aesthetic of, pagan, of the pagan sacred, of the idea of there is a hierarchy and you do not question the hierarchy and you do not upset the tradition of the hierarchy. 
when I say the pagan sacred, it doesn't mean everything in pagan sacred culture is bad. It just means that's what the right tends to be aesthetically. Right. They're uh, definitely uh, more in tune with the, the hierarchical structure of, of yeah. things. You know, uh, it's, it's just funny because uh, I always wonder what that word conservative actually means. Uh, yeah. It's more of a methodology than any, they're trying to conserve anything. But, uh, you know, you, the right is notorious with uh, with justice and law and order. And uh, and they always want to make sure people are following the rules. <laughs> and it seems like the left, uh, you know, they don't they don't not they're not too in tune with the rules. They always wanted to change things. Obviously, that's what the word progressivism means right there. So was that what Jesus came to do? Just react to change? No, he didn't. He came to, he came to declare what the truth was. Right. But he wanted to take things to a direction, right? Mm hmm. He wanted to he wanted to make society go somewhere, right? Yeah, that's true. So that would mean the left is more like Christ in terms of their aesthetic. But unfortunately, because they're more like Christ, they have more cultural power, which makes them become more drunken power, and they do a lot of violent stuff with that. But that's why that's why we have that's why we have Joe Biden in the White House after 50 years of dropping bombs on people of color and caging people of color. And yet he's being told that he is the hero that will help us bring racial reconciliation. That's the left doing what the left does, which is, you know, they use the aesthetic of concern for victims. You know, the left has great rhetoric. Remember what Barack Obama said? We're going to be the chains that we're looking for. We're going to be the chains. The seas will part. The moon will come out. The oceans will rise and the people will have their change. Yes, we can. We can do it. There's no, that sounds so good to the soul. Because it sounds like Christ stuff, you know, I mean, it sounds like concern for victims. It sounds like liberation. And the left is very good at rhetoric that is steeped in the Christian concern for victims, but they orient that rhetoric towards authoritarian uh, sacrificial purposes. And the right is not as effective because they tend to be the reactionary uh, pagan sacred alternative. But because Jesus is the history change agent, not the pagan sacred, the right always loses. Because they, even though they have the metaphysics of Christianity, they talk about we believe in God and all that stuff, but the aesthetic that they represent does not imbue it with that Christian energy. You see what I mean? Mm -hmm. That's so important to think about, the aesthetic of the gospel. Absolutely. And then you have uh, the small minority of people, we'll, we'll just call them the libertarians who, you know, espouse individualism yeah. and, uh, and nonviolence. But uh, most of them, uh, I don't want to I don't want to classify any group of people, obviously, but a lot of them don't even understand some of the uh, the background we had, the, the idea of where Western civilization was built, the, uh, right. the principle of uh, of Christianity. Right. That's why they don't, because they, they, they are Cartesians. I think blank, therefore I am right. Mm. They don't understand that human beings didn't pop out like that. That it was a human uh, cultural anthropological process that human beings have had for thousands of years. Mm -hmm. You know, what is the libertarian response to ritual cannibalism? I mean, that's the origins of human culture. People would share a meal together around a fire and it happened to be human. Mm. And, uh, that's why Jesus says, eat my body, drink my blood, because he's bringing us back to that primordial moment that human culture was steeped in, which is, again, remember, mimetic desire is the desire to be to the point where people desire so much they would eat their neighbor. <laughs> Isn't that terrible? But, you know, Jesus brings us back to that by saying, eat my body, drink my blood, to call us to remember 
where we came from. Mimetic desire, the desire to, 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 to consume someone's very being to the point where you eat them physically. Goodness gracious. So the, the libertarians don't want to know that Jesus is the founder of the liberty movement. And I say that in broad speaking because I think a lot of libertarians do believe that. But I'm just, I'm just you know, speaking rhetorically here that some libertarians don't want to acknowledge that Jesus is the founder of the liberty movement because they don't want to see how the state and religion are intertwined together, that the state came out of religion. And that the idea of a secular space is a Christian doctrine. So everything, everything that they hold to is actually just, you know, derivative of Christianity, but they're so afraid of the metaphysics because they've been told by mimetic fashion today that, oh, if you talk about Jesus, you're talking about a fairy tale and Super Mario. This is a fictional character, Harry Potter stuff. And so they, they, they've just, that's the fashion of the time that they're born in. Mm -hmm. And so they think they're rugged individualists because they Google the nap, but they don't understand how much of a part of the group think society that they're in because they're still going along with the same biases of our age that Jesus is a myth or Christians are hypocrites. Well, of course the Christians are hypocrites. I mean, it's very difficult to imitate Jesus. Mm -hmm. Try it for one day. It's very hard, you know? <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. So it's interesting as we uh, as we're witnessing this, uh, you know, I don't want to be a fatalist, but uh, I don't know how much more uh, this country is going to take before it just <laughs> we have massive revolution or revolts. I mean, it, uh, in my lifetime, you know, things have just dramatically gotten worse and worse and uh, and, and people are forgetting their backgrounds, but uh, they're, they're imitating everything they see. What, what do you think is going to happen in, in, in long term? Well, I think I have an optimistic approach to the long term. I think in the long term that human history is moving in the right direction. And uh, I would just say it like this. Um, you know that story when Jesus is coming into Jerusalem and they say, and they're praising his name as the chosen one, he's the hero. Mm -hmm. And the authorities say, tell those people to be quiet. And he says, when they are silent, the stones will cry out, right? Right. Well, the stones will cry out is a re reference to Habakkuk chapter 2. Okay, so I'm going to read Habakkuk. I'm going to read from that portion real quick. This gives you my understanding of the future. So Habakkuk chapter 2 is a prophet named Habakkuk who's challenging a wicked king of his time. And uh, he says, Woe to him who piles up stolen goods. Have you heard of people that steal goods lately? Mm the state and makes himself wealthy by extortion. Have you heard of that? Oh yeah. How long must this go on? Will not your creditors suddenly arise? Will they not wake up and make you tremble? Then you will become their prey because you have plundered many nations. The peoples who are left will plunder you for you have shed human blood and you have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. Woe to him who builds his house by unjust gain setting his nest on high to escape the clutches of ruin. You have plotted the ruin of many peoples, shaming your own house and forfeiting your life. Here it is. This is the point that Jesus quotes. The stones of the wall will cry out, and the beams of the woodwork will echo it. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and establishes a town by injustice. 
In the stones of cornerstone rituals, they would lay human beings sacrificed for the preservation of the beginning of a new city or a new town or a new dam. This happened all over the world, in Japan, ancient mm -hmm. Germany, Jericho, all over the place. They would lay a human sacrifice at the cornerstone ritual to, to bless and consecrate the new city or the new wall with the blood of an innocent victim. So he's talking about this here. The stones of the wall will cry out saying, woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and establishes a town by injustice. That's sacrifice. That's the scapegoat mechanism. Has not the Lord Almighty determined that the people's labor is only fuel for the fire, that the nations exhaust themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the water covers the sea. You see that? So it sounds like the future is going to be uh, repeating exactly what the scriptures are saying. We're, we're looking for that... Uh the sacrifice, but, uh, you know, long-term, who's going to win in the end, right? Well, look at it. It says, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So when he said, so when Jesus takes this quote, this is where I'm going to show you this happened in history. Mm -hmm. Because the next week, the crowd was silent. They turned their back on him. Mm. And the stones of the wall cried out, meaning the hidden victims of every nation have been speaking out and history is haunted by scapegoats, human sacrifices. And that includes our wars. That includes our unjust justice system and all the other things that go along with it. And so what, what this passage is talking about is saying when Jesus has the crowd silent, right? When the, when the, when the crowd goes silent, we have been hearing victims in history ever since mm. and the knowledge of the lord will fill the earth as the water covers the sea does that make sense oh yeah that means ever since jesus died on the cross the knowledge of god has been filling the earth as water fills the sea mm. that's a lot so that means that in my opinion history is going to a better understanding of the concern for victims and nonviolence and all the things that Jesus talks about. Jesus says God desires mercy not sacrifice. Jesus says the meek shall inherit the earth. You know all these things are going to be fulfilled in history, I believe. That doesn't mean it's going to get perfectly better with no problems. It just means that things are going to go up and down but in the big picture they're going in the right direction, I believe. Right. The question we have to ask ourselves is, is Jesus saving the world? Hmm. And will he save the world? Or is, did he, is, he a, is he a failure? Well, I think you and I can both uh, uh, come to terms that he wasn't a failure, but uh, we're witnessing uh, some of this stuff going on right now. And uh, as long as we get good messages out there and, and continue to do his bidding, like he says, proselytize the message, then uh, things are getting better. You know, I think when I say that uh, we're heading towards a, uh, a transition of uh, mysticism, right? I think that people finding their faith, returning to that, uh, the idea of having a savior come and, uh, and, and restore all things. I think that's going to be important going forward. Yeah, I think so. David, I appreciate the conversation that we had. And I, I'd love to be able to chat with you again in the future. But, uh, you know, I'm not as versed in, uh, in scriptures as I should be. But uh, I, I really think that uh, uh, there, are some, uh, there are some great teachings there. And uh, I, I want to thank you for your work that you've done. I do encourage people to, uh, to, to look you up. Uh, why don't you go ahead and plug uh, your show and, and uh, some of the other work that you're doing? 
Well, our, our show's called A Neighbor's Choice. It airs Monday through Friday from 4 to 6 p.m. Eastern time. Our website is aneighborschoice.com. That's aneighborschoice.com. And uh, you can also find us by searching for David Gronoski on YouTube, where my channel is. You'll see my daily radio show and my podcast interviews. And then you can also look for us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Just search for David Gronoski because I put both my radio show and neighbor's choice and the podcast things hidden under the same title of just my name. So if people can find it easy. All right. Well, thank you very much, David. I appreciate that. All right. Thank you. I want to thank David for his time coming on the show today. I also want to thank the listeners who come back each and every week to hear the stories of people who have either theorized or put into practice what it means to be Invictus. I absolutely love those inspiring people who think outside the box. I love discussing and learning about new ideas. And honestly, though at times I feel overwhelmed by the knowledge some of my guests like David have, I am grateful to be able to build this network of individuals who willingly share their thoughts to help me grow. And because this show is so eclectic by nature, my hope is that you will walk away either a more informed person or if you are better yourself because of it. Come back next week for another exciting episode. We will, of course, continue to provide value and hopefully entertainment for your time. And together, we want to create the world that we want to live in, the world that we deserve to, to live in. So keep growing, keep learning, be good, and stay free. Take care. 